Why is it we humans get romanced by complexity when the answers can be found at a simple and practical level? This is the Simply Practically Human podcast, where the human manager, Mark Labasque, features experts who have a track record in humanizing workplaces, using simplicity and practicality as their go-to approach. It's all about getting back to what it is to be human and watch workplaces thrive rather than just survive. Hey there, it's Mark Labusque for the Simply Practically Human podcast. And um, here's a term that I'd never heard of before, but I learned a hell of a lot about it in this uh, episode with uh, Colin Newman. It's um, the decrapification of work. So what Colin's all about, he is a human on a mission to decrapify work. So today in the episode, we're going to talk a lot, or Colin's going to share a whole lot of his experiences on how work becomes crap. And what are some things that we can start to do to decrapify work? What are some of the things that we need to move out in order to make that space so we can start to do the sort of work that is important in uh, these times, which are more human times, allowing us to step into some of these skills they say we really need today, but we're still being given the sort of crappy way of doing things from the old system. So Colin's going to share his lived experiences in working in good organisations and then maybe in some and in the same organisation in a bad area and how that can be so different in the same organisation. And then what that did to him, which, as he said, basically had him running at the brick wall, smashing his head against it day after day and just putting up with what was going on. He'll then get into talking a little bit about the, the history of pirates and how that relates to the decrapification of work at a point where he will then share his, I guess what he calls his tales of how in simple and practical ways that people can help to decrapify work. And it doesn't necessarily have to come from the top. I think that's a really important point that he made. I really enjoyed uh, meeting Colin a few uh, months back and just his really, really calm demeanor in the way that he presents about something that's such an important thing in the workplace is how do we start to make work more fun and it's a place where we go to enjoy ourselves, do great things with other human beings rather than feeling like we're living in fear, we're trapped. We hear mixed messages about people being the most important thing but always being put to the end of the uh, end of the line. So have a listen, take some notes and grab yourself a drink and I'm sure you'll enjoy this. We'll catch you at the end of the episode. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by a human on a mission to decrapify work. Colin Newland, thanks for joining me. Pleasure, Mark. Thanks for inviting me. Mate, decrapification and decrapify. I um, before we sort of get into how we met, I, I pulled a a, um, a definition straight off the Google box, and uh, it said this: it said decrapify is to remove unwanted junk and clutter. An example is I really need to decrapify my garage so I may park my car. Just very quickly, if you think about that, because you want to decrapify the workplace or decrapify work, what's the unwanted junk and clutter that you're trying to move on? I would say it's, I mean, you know, just general pointless bureaucracy, meaningless meetings, endless email trails and all that sort of nonsense and all that performative rubbish that people do yeah all of that's got to go i think 
I love it. And we'll get into that a bit. What's interesting, I reckon in the first minute of people just hearing what you said, they'll be tuning in now going, I think this guy knows what he's talking about. So before we get into some of that and you share some of your ideas and whatnot, I always like to start with where we connected. And I remember, I think there seems to be either LinkedIn or a thing called Drinking Dialogue. So what was your recollection of our first human-to-human virtual interaction? I think it was Drinking Dialogues. We we got stuck in one of those virtual rooms together and had a good chinwag as we do in those things. Yeah. One of the things that drew me to you and to get you to come on here was when you deliver your message, you do it in such a, like it's not, you're not ranting about it. It's just like, here's what it is. And and I, I watch other people on the screen and they're like, oh, shit, that hurt a bit. But the way that you just <laughs> deliver it up very, very, very calmly and very nicely, it sort of tells me that you've been through a fair bit of the the crap in the workplace. What does decrapify mean to you? When you sort of grabbed hold of that term, what, what does it mean? It was actually, I guess I came in a bit more from a personal perspective. So it sort of started off, I got involved in this area, because I guess, because through my personal experience and just thinking, why are organisations so rubbish and dysfunctional and stupid? And there was a big thing at the time about employee engagement. You know, firms saying, why don't we have any employee engagement? And I thought, well, if you didn't treat your staff like shit, then maybe they might like you a bit better. You know, it's just so obvious, isn't it? I mean, we did, people are just treated really badly as a matter of course. And so that was where my thinking started. And then I, I wondered, because uh, the thing I did before this was about trying to help people coming out corporate in their sort of mid-career. And so many people were, were actually broken by their experience in corporate. I think, you know, why, why is this? And then my kids went into the, into the workplace, and then my oldest son said, work's no fun anymore, Dad. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> all these people tell me in the past of all these things they used to do that were, you know, good fun, and that's all been taken out. So, so why is it that we have such a poor experience at, at work? Mm. And so I thought about that, and I came up with this thing about the crapification of work which is sort of a, a number of different processes. And at the base of it is something that's annoyed me since I was an economics graduate, which is shareholder primacy. Yeah. And uh, Milton Friedman's paper on it, he was, he was not one of my favourite economists by any means. And this whole thing about, you know, profits first and sort the people. But it wasn't just that because there's lots of other bits as well. You know, then you had this obsession with efficiency all the time, you know. And, and we all know where that gets to. You get to these yep. things where you have all these sort of like, you're so busy pairing off seconds of something that you make the whole task ridiculous. Yeah. So everything has to be a process and it's all got to be measured and that's the thing that matters even though what you're doing is complete. I mean, we've all experienced this. You know, you do something, you deliver a project in time, but nobody wants it because everything's moved on since you started it. But you get a pat on the back. You know, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, mate. I'm just thinking quickly about a couple of things you said there. The shareholder situation and, and but at the same time in organizations we're talking about how our people come first and that people are our most important thing we tend to try and hold off on those engagement surveys because we're just going through change and we may not get the result that we want but guess what that never changes it doesn't matter and that thing you said about measuring and efficiency and and the words that come to mind there for me are doing more with less seems to be the catch cry of the crapified workplace. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and actually, it should be, why are we doing more? 
because most yeah. of it's complete rubbish. Um, mm. yeah, I don't know if you've read uh, Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber. No, I haven't, no. So he's, he's sadly died last year, but he was a brilliant mind. But he his premise was that you know, most work is bullshit. And if people have these jobs, that are meaningless. And he yep. tracked the jobs of people that actually do things, like frontline jobs, people who clean your shoes, people that clean your house and so on, has been about 10% for decades. Yep. And yet we've seen this massive growth in employment in large corporations. And it's people in managerial and administrative positions. Yeah. How much of that stuff is actually needed? Well, we need a lot of things today, like a chief empowerment officer or, (laughs) you know, it's just like just put chief in front of it or head of was the big thing at one stage. Like put the word design in there somewhere as well because that's important. And then all of a sudden you create a whole new ecosystem or a whole new tribe of people and you're like, what do you do? Well, I'm the chief of the thing. And it's like, really? What do you yeah, do? This, no. this stuff blooms, doesn't it? So, I, I, I mean, I can remember this. You, you, you go along to a, a meeting, and somebody comes up with a really flash presentation done in, you know, PowerPoint with moving graphics and all this sort of stuff. So then everybody else is thinking, "Oh shit, I need to do that next time." So now they've got all their people spending hours doing, and then you're just talking to someone else in the organisation. You don't need it to look like. Yeah, so that's the, that's all the performance stuff, isn't it? You know. It's, well, that that sounds like if you if you imagine back to the definition of the garage, I'm just I'm I'm imagining decks and decks of PowerPoint slides in hard copy, just filling up that garage. Because really, you've just hit you've hit on a really good one here: monthly reviews, quarterly business reviews. It's more about the optics of the yeah. presentation than actually the, the the quality of the information that's coming out. And the amount of people that even recently I've spoken to someone who said he was about 1% out on a number in his pack and he was berated for that. <laughs> he wasn't given any acknowledgement for the good work. And, and, and you could actually see how fearful he was because he hadn't delivered this one thing in a PowerPoint pack. And I'm sure that ass kicking went all the way back down the line there as well for people. It's hugely destructive as well because I, I can remember right from very early in my, early on in my career and we had to put this telex, a messaging to telex interface, which that's how old I am, um, and we had to build this thing. And my boss said to me, well, we need to write a business case. I'd never written a business case before. So I wrote this business case and then we went to see his boss and his boss pulled it to pieces. And yet we had to do this. We had customer commitments to do this thing. It, was, it wasn't that we weren't going to go ahead with it. He just pulled it to pieces. Yep. And I felt like, you know, like this till afterwards. I mean, it just, and it still rankles in me, and that must be 30 years ago. So imagine that going on every day is extremely destructive to people. So let's go back to the start and, and way back and talk a bit about, I guess, I know you're in the UK, but where you grew up and what you pursued from education perspective and then maybe how that led you into the early parts of your career, what what can you share with us there? Yeah, so I lived just outside London, well, in the suburbs, really, and I was born quite near here, and I've always lived around here. <laughs> so, yeah, good childhood, went to school, did quite well, went to university, studied economics, uh, came across Milton Friedman, other charlatans like that. Um, <laughs> and then when I left university, I got I got a 2-2, which was, uh, you know, like a Desmond, as we call them over here. What is that? Tell me more. I'm, I'm 
What's well, what as, is in it? Desmond, as in Desmond? Oh, Desmond two two. So what? <laughs> well, what is it? Okay, all right. So two a two two is what? It's what they call a. I think they call it a gent. No, it's a gentleman's degree. Sometimes, it basically, it means you've had a good a good social life as well as an academic life. Oh, nice! I like that. <laughs> I can I can relate to that. Yep. Because I spent quite a lot of time drinking beer and going to punk rock concerts and things nice. like that. And when I left, I didn't really have a clue what I did, so I bounced around doing a few temporary jobs. And I ended up with this temporary job in a this bit of BT called Prestel. And cut a long story short, they eventually I got back into that. Because they said, we like you, we think we could give you a permanent job. But of course, the wheels took a long time to turn. Uh, and Presto was this little thing that was a bit like the internet before the internet started. And it was all completely new and nobody knew what they were doing. And it was quite entrepreneurial. And I loved it. I thrived in that environment. And then I went on to work in a business called Telecom Gold, which at the time was the leading sort of public email service provider in the UK. And again, it was another bit of BT that was a subsidiary and it was very entrepreneurial because we were, again, making stuff up as we went along. So that was all very good and I really enjoyed that. I had a really good sort of seven or so years there. And then we got moved into this other bit of BT, which was completely different. It was very hierarchical, very command and control, uh, very fear-driven. And, uh, yeah, I didn't really know what the hell was going on, to be honest. I was quite naive, I guess, in, in many ways. And... That was the second part of my career was was horrible in many ways. Yeah. And although I really enjoyed the work I was doing, the people I worked with, the environment I worked in was toxic and yeah. really bad. And I ended up with um, a very bad experience with a with a boss who yeah did a lot of damage to me. To be quite honest. Yeah. Um, what I often say to people, you know, I'm, I, when I tell this story, it's not because I want sympathy. It's because it's not unusual. Mm. That's the thing that's shocking, and that's what I found is. Lots of people have got stories like this. So then I left. So I had this sort of like dichotomy of like, I had this two-part career in BT, one half of which was really good fun and enjoyable and uh, very personally great for growth. And the other part was quite destructive, really, and, and painful and horrible. Even though in the second part, the actual work I was doing, the people I was working with, I really enjoyed. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have stayed there. Mm. So I eventually... I left BT to go and work for another small telecoms company, which was a completely different environment, a very personal in the way that if you work in a large organization, I used to say in, in BT, at least they stab you in the chest. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's, this isn't personal, but you're in the way. I'm going to get rid of you. Yes. Whereas in this company, it was all about your personal relationships and if you were in or out and all that sort of stuff. Okay. Anyway, so I ended up getting made redundant from there because I was obviously out at a certain point. <laughs> uh, and then I did some consultancy for a bit and then one of my clients offered me a job. I was a client in the city and it was I knew it was the wrong environment for me. I didn't really appreciate quite how wrong it was. Yeah, so that lasted a couple of years and then I sort of fell out of corporate. Yeah, nice. Back, battered and bruised. Well, I say nice, maybe you don't mean nice as in nice that you were battered and bruised, but... You know, we always talk about learning the lessons from great leaders and all those sorts of things, but I think there's just as many important lessons from the shit experiences. And, you know, I've, I've had two redundancies, by the way. So, you know, you can be either in the penthouse or the shithouse and you can move very quickly from one to the other. What were some of the lessons that you learned from the bad experiences that have helped to shape your thoughts around what you're trying to help people with today? It was the lack of awareness and the lack of 
tools and techniques to be able to deal with what was going on that was actually really the problem. Yeah. And it took me quite a few years to actually figure out what had been going on to get that awareness. I can remember sitting at my desk and thinking, what is going on? This is nuts. This is, I don't understand this. And I'm very much about getting stuff done. And all these people seem to be determined to stop me doing anything and then tell me off for not doing anything. (laughs) So I guess it's that if only someone had been able to take me aside then and say, look, this is what's going on. This is what you need to do to manage yourself. Mm. And this is what you need to do to manage the situation. And not to do what I was doing, which was staying in denial, bottling everything up, putting my head down and running even harder on the brick wall. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that there are better ways of doing things. Why do you think it is that, because what you just described, I think would resonate with, what resonates with me at a younger age in my career, but also with others, it's like put your head down and just run harder at the brick wall knowing full well that when you hit the brick wall, it hurts, but you just go back and you go again and again and again. What do you reckon traps human beings into dusting themselves off and going again at the brick wall? Well, because that's what we're told to do. And, you know, that's what we've been brought up to do, isn't it? You you work hard, persevere, grind it out, all that sort of stuff. Hmm. And, and it's a strategy, you know, with all these things, these are strategies that have worked for you previously in your life. Mm. It's just that they don't work anymore and yeah. you need to be able to swap them out and bring in something that does work. And I guess the, the, what I also needed to do was open up and understand my emotions and be vulnerable. Yes. And that was, you know, like, don't do that. No. Well... <laughs> You can have emotions, but don't bring them into the office, whatever you do. You're ticking all the wrong boxes there, mate. You're, uh, first of all, you're a male and you shouldn't be doing that. And then secondly, at a point in time in the workplace, you didn't do that. And so, you know, almost everything that you needed to do, you couldn't do. And so the better option was to run headfirst at the brick wall. Yeah. And Brené Brown talks about, you know, you build up armour. Every time someone attacks you, you put another piece of armour up. And, and that's what I was doing. I was yeah. very good at it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Was there a point where the armour got pierced and it was just like, I'm just at a point now where I can't do this anymore or burnout or anything? Did you cop anything like that for yourself? Any get to that point? I, I guess in a way. I mean, I left, when I left my last full-time role, at the same time my father died. Oh, okay. And I think looking back, I, I had a bit of a breakdown, really. I just mm. was not functioning at all. And I think the reason I went off and did my own thing eventually was because I think at some level I knew I wasn't able to go back into that corporate environment. I didn't mm. know it consciously, but I'm thinking about it now. You know, at some level within me, my inner wisdom was saying, don't go back there, not yet yeah. anyway. Yeah, and of course that inner wisdom is something you're also told not to take any notice of. Well, you shouldn't trust your gut or your intuition no. or any of those sorts of things because no. invariably they're, they're not as logical as above the neck, but they're usually the things that, that, that trigger for us. And I like that idea of sort of telling you what you, you shouldn't be doing. We tend to get romanced by this other voice that tells us that there's good around the corner for you. Hang in there, Colin. It's going to be okay. Mm. And uh, I used to fall for that as a younger manager be like, this will be the time when it will really change. And I was part of the problem as well, don't get me wrong, because I, I got romanced into that. But 
there came a point too for me where it's like, it's not about what you want to do, it's about what you're not prepared to do anymore. And I think mm. that was to tolerate the crap that went on, you know, every year. It's the performance reviews twice a year. It's the engagement survey. It's the town hall meeting where it's all going to change again and then nothing changes because the very people who are talking about the change are the very ones that are making sure it doesn't bloody change. And yeah, and, and absolutely. They, we end up in a curled up in a ball. So you're out now and, and sort of playing around with where you take this, this idea that your real passion is to help others to understand what's going on for themselves in this space and maybe not experience it as badly as you did. What do you, what, what, what's next for you around that, do you think? So that was what, sort of where I started with, you know, so this idea of, oh, I'll help people coming out corporate. That's where I got to eventually. Yeah. But actually, that wasn't really my sort of passion and I didn't, I didn't really want to be in that space because people in that situation can be quite difficult to deal with. Yes. Um, I know myself, I wasn't, you know, the most cheeriest of people at that time. So it was really that, well, you know, we're obviously we shouldn't get to this point where people are being you know, burnt out and distressed in this way. But the change isn't going to come from the top because if it was, they would have done it by now. And this is, as I started to read into this and I sort of had my views, I kept reading stuff that just said that my views were, you know, correct. And there mm. was not only were they correct, but there was loads of evidence and research to show it was correct, right? So it's not that, the data isn't there. The data is being ignored by the people yeah. at the top because for the very reason you said, they want to keep things as they are because they're doing fine, thank you very much. Mm. Or if they're not doing fine, they think they're doing fine, even though it probably is damaging them. Yeah. So the change is going to have to come from below. Yeah. And we talked earlier about you know bullshit jobs and all this sort of you know stuff that goes on. It tends to be at the sort of higher levels. You have lots of people doing stuff that isn't particularly, how can I put this? It's not very closely connected to the uh, the purpose of the business, shall we say? So, <laughs> what a lovely um, way to put it. So, um, the people who actually do the work are really the people in the middle, the team managers, the you know team leaders, the people on the front line. And one of the solutions I think is to really empower them and yep. to move organisations more to networks of teams. And you know, self-organising and stuff like that, but they're not going to be given that power. So really, they need to be encouraged to sort of step up and start to take it and exercise yeah. the power that they have. So that's what I'm trying to do: is actually talk to those people. Lovely. And I think one of the one of the tricks they play on you in large organisations is they, they they train you in uh, learned helplessness. Yes, yes. Can you explain what that means? Because I. Uh... I'm with you here, but just for the listeners, what is learned helplessness? So learned helplessness is where you believe you can't do anything. Mm. You are powerless, and therefore you don't do anything. So there was a there was an experiment, I can't remember what you did it now, but where they they had dogs in like a pen with a little wall in the middle, and when the dogs laid down, they put a small electric charge through, and they jump over the other side. And for one lot of dogs, when they jumped over the other side, they put a little electric charge in that side. The dog jumped back the other way. So the dog eventually decides, well, there's no point jumping over the wall. Right? So then they switch off the electric charge on one side, and the dog still doesn't bother trying to jump over the wall. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Because I get you. And they believe that there's no point. 
And that's where we get to in corporations. It's like everybody gets apathetic. Uh, well, what's the point? I can't change anything around here. You know, this is just how it is. I'll just have to put up with it, take the paycheck, go home, you know, be miserable. And that's no good because that has a ripple effect out into families and communities and all those things. And Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the interesting, again, interesting thing you talked about, I have a big belief that this myth about it, the change has to start at the top. Well, let me tell you, and you won't be surprised, that ain't going to happen. So I have a view about the engine room of the business becoming the place that puts upward pressure on others in the business. And it might also mean when you demonstrate leadership at that level that you put yourself at risk and you get taken out. But here's yeah. where I want to go now because I love your I loved your thing I read about pirate coaching and pirates and the history of piracy. And as you were talking about if you don't like it, well, then you need to act. Can you share with the listeners about your, your knowledge of how pirates came about and what happened there? Because I think this is a great story. Yeah, so, so this, this is... Take it. I mean, there's a book, Be More Pirate, written by uh, Sam Conniff. And uh, I work with the lady who runs the, the pirate community now. And basically, in the late 1600s, there were all these young professionals who were being thrown out the Navy. So they didn't have any jobs. They were being treated abysmally. Um, they had no rights because at that time, everybody was a subject of somebody. So you had no basic rights, no freedoms. Uh, and they basically said, sod it. We're not putting up with this. We're going to create our own rules and create our own society. So, so they became pirates, and they instituted things like fair pay, democracy, so everyone on a pirate ship gets a vote. Everyone's equal. So it didn't matter whether you were white, black, a woman. It uh, didn't matter what your sexual orientation was. And at that time, a pirate ship was the only place in the world where a black man could be free and equal. Yeah. And that, that remained the case for quite a long time, sadly. And it was all about, you know, being free and making your own rules and having justice. So, so the justice might have been quite harsh, but it was fair. Everybody knew what the rules were. If you broke the rules, you got left on a desert island, end of, yep. you know. And so being more pirate is about bringing that attitude in that the rules are wrong the system's broken you know the only reasonable thing to do is to mutiny and create our own rules that really deliver our values and principles and it's doing it with a bit it's a bit more to it than that so there's there's talk about the pirate code in a minute but a big part of it is actually truth telling which is yes. i think what i try to do which is just say this is how it is right let's stop pretending <laughs> let's the bollocks let's just say what it is it's about redistributing power so you know, on a conventional ship, the captain was, was pretty much God. On a pirate ship, the captain is voted for by the crew. Yeah. You have a captain and a quartermaster who are both voted for by the crew. And if the crew don't like their performance, they vote them off and vote somebody else in. Yeah. And they tell tall tales. So the pirates are really good. The pirates didn't actually kill as many people as, as and they weren't quite as cutthroat as people may believe. But they told lots of stories that they were. Mm. And so they created this, this terrifying image. So quite often, they would pull up alongside another ship, raise a Jolly Roger, and the other ship would just surrender because they'd heard what pirates did. <laughs> and they'd have to kill anybody. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah, and Sam Coddick says that they, they had the first global brand, which was the Jolly Roger. Because every, everybody knew what a Jolly Roger meant. <laughs> and, and that's a very important thing because you don't, you know, to make this change happen, you don't have power to start with. Mm. You've got to 
garner the power. So you've got to tell some really good stories. Yeah. You've got to, you know, you've got to have good branding, if you like, to cut through and to carry people with you. Mm -hmm. um, and the other part, the other re really important thing about it is it's about gathering together a small crew of like minds and that enables you to overcome bigger odds. So the pirates would have a ship of about 80 people and the ships they are going up against would have 200, 300 people on board. But because they were all on the same page, yeah. motivated, supporting each other, they outperformed them. Jeez, there's a lot of uh, lessons to be learnt from that for our, for our workplaces. And um, like you said, like-minded, and I, I, I like that. The other thing that came to mind, because we do talk about this in DD, and I know Richard brought it up quite a lot, is like-spirited. Mm. Yeah, that like-spirited type as well. That Maybe they're not all like-minded, as in they all think the same way, but their spirit is what carries them through. This is the great dilemma, though, because what you've just described is how work should work. I think, but we also know that the evil sources of the old system, they're either there front and centre or during COVID they've, they've lurked in the shadows as people have almost become more pirate in that yeah, time. But, but they're actually going to, they'll come back out of the shadows and they'll do their thing. What I'm curious to hear from you now, Colin, is if you're talking to this mid-level now, this engine room of like-minded, like-spirited types who would like to help an organisation to become a better version of itself, what would be three simple and practical tips that you would give to those people through the middle that, that would make sure that they didn't try a mutiny but they also didn't get thrown off the bloody boat themselves? What would be three things? Yeah, I mean, you know, it is about mutiny, but it's about mutiny without getting yeah. Pun. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a fine line. Yeah. So what, what would be the first thing you, you would do? So you have to, I mean, I think you've got to have a, a cause that you're going to rally around to start to make some change. It doesn't have to be a massive one, but it, you've got to take that first step. So, so one of the things we talk about is, is taking, you know, small, bold actions. So pick something that you think is stupid and then decide a, a stupid rule and then break it. Yep. So, you know, I don't know, maybe at some meeting that you have to go to that is completely pointless and maybe a bunch of you decide, we're just not going to go to that meeting anymore. Yep, nice. Or in one place they, they started putting on the bottom of their emails, I can't remember the phrase was, but it's something about, does everybody on this email really need to get this email? Because mm. they got fed up with people just covering their ass by circulating everybody. I'm also thinking there, what about that stupid report that you have to write that no one ever reads, but it goes to 200 people? Yeah. So, so, so little things like that, like that idea of just don't do something that is mindless and mundane and everybody knows that, but nobody says it. Yeah. And, you know, when, when you've decided the sort of things that you might want to have a little mutiny about, then you need to find your crewmates. <laughs> is, that num is this point number two, do you think? Is this about well, building... I think, yeah, because I think you've got to be clear within, you know, you've got to connect with that that spirit within you and start to get a bit angry about something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or pissed off about something. And then you've got something, so you can say to people, look, I've, got a, I've made this list of things or, you know, that really annoy me. Let's have, a, you know, let's have a chat and see what you can put on the list as well and just get, I don't know how many people you want, half a dozen people or so, 
just some other people because you are going to be a bit exposed when you do this yep. and you need people around you that you know are going to cheer you on and stand up for you and you're going to cover each other's backs and then start to break a few rules um, and create some little mutinies and when you've when you've had some successes then start to tell some tall tales about them you know start to tell you you've got to let people know and you've got to do it in a way that people find engaging i love it a lot of this stuff about you know pirates is not different so, so what you know the pirates collaborated at scale mm. right they get a bunch of ships but when you say collaborate at scale it doesn't sound very interesting does it you know when you say that they invaded panama city right so the panama city is defended suddenly all these pirate ships appear from nowhere because they've all told themselves they're going to rendezvous somewhere and there's two thousand men on, I can't remember any pirate, pirate ships, but and then they sail in and take the place over. And it's yeah. like, you know, that's an interesting story. Yeah. That's it's something people can associate with. I really like that idea of knowing that you're exposed, so maybe not going for too big a cause that spooks the horses or does something to people. They go, now we're going to defend fiercely, but just a few little bits and pieces here and there Finding your crewmates is a really good one. Like you need to have people to have your back. But I really love that last bit is when you've delivered on some of this stuff, you know, this could be in the coffee shop now. It could be sitting around going, hey, um, you, have you heard that that meeting ne- no longer happens? So not only were there 50 people going to that meeting for two hours, we've actually got 100 hours back and I was part of that. Yeah. What are we going to do next? And then I think storytelling or the, the telling of these tall tales is, is a really important part because I think that gives other people who might be like-minded but maybe a bit fearful, you know, like the yeah. Colin who used to run at the brick wall, <laughs> all of a sudden you'll stop and you'll go, oh, shit, there's another way here that we can do this and I won't have to keep bashing my head against the brick wall. So such great ideas. Did you have any other tips or any other tools around that space? Um, no, I, just, I was just going to say on that. I mean, one of the other things I sometimes talk about is that in organisations, it, it's like a fantasy land, right? <laughs> Surely not. We do all this stuff that's totally artificial, and we have all these beliefs, you know, like, so, yeah, we're going to do the five-year plan because you know, we know what's going to happen in five years' time. And a lot of this stuff goes unquestioned. You don't realise it until you've left quite often. So, I mean, uh, and that's not always in a good way. So I know when I left, all those people I thought were really good friends. Turns out the only thing we really had in common was work. Was work. And they weren't really good friends. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of them were. I mean, I'm still friends with some of them. So the illusion is shattered. It's a stage you go through called disenchantment. Yep. And to go through disenchantment, that means you were in an enchantment in the first place. <laughs> So, it's, yeah. so these sorts of actions, breaking the rules, coming up with better rules, you know, like, why do you do it like that? It's stupid, isn't it? Let's do it this way. That's breaking that enchantment, and it encourages other people to think, mm. hang on a minute, this, this isn't quite what I thought. I've been assuming that this thing we all do is really, really important. Actually, it's really stupid and doesn't help anybody. Like, why are we doing it? Well, it actually makes us feel important, doesn't it? Because we're part of the fantasy and the fairy tale. Like, I was part of the five-year plan didn't become a five-year plan because a year after we wrote the new five-year plan. <laughs> and then we went on an, an off-site and we wrote another five-year plan with a consultant who came in with a new template that made us feel 
special because we're in the Enchanted Forest. Yeah. And the other thing that we got to do was we got to turn pretty simple things into highly complicated <laughs> things. So here's my next question for you, mate. I call this podcast a Simply Practically Human podcast because my belief is that we, in this fantasy land that you've so well described, we are very bloody good at turning simplicity into complexity and all standing around the flames of complexity to warm our hands because we feel better about yeah. it. Why do human beings run towards complexity when the simplicity of sitting around telling tales and and hoisting your Jolly Roger it could be a lot easier than doing that. What, what what do you reckon, mate? Well, we've been told that work has to be hard, haven't we? You know, that's, I mean, you know, the Protestant work ethic is in our society and work has to be hard and it has to be a bit grim probably, you know, and it's all about sweat and toil and and so we make it hard and difficult and complicated uh, and then that makes us feel like, well, we're justifying our power and status and you know the rewards we get and if it's easy and it's fun then that's sort of cheating in some sort of way and we can't have fun at work well, no, exactly it's got to exactly think about this for a minute I, I flipped two words around once with a team of mine and asked them what they enjoyed at work in the last month and what they achieved outside of work and they couldn't answer the question for the first month or two because their brains weren't wired that mm. way achievement happens at work Enjoyment happens outside of work. How dare you ask us those questions when we work in a grim and hard environment? Like <laughs> That's what we've done to each other, though, haven't we? Yeah, um, and one of the things that used to annoy me is this. As well as the thing about employee engagement, the other big thing companies used to or still do talk about and worry about is creativity and innovation. You know, we haven't got enough creativity. We haven't got enough innovation. Oh, yeah. It's like, well, that's because you created a system that if anybody tries to be creative or innovative, they get punished. Yes. And, and you can't do that thing to a plan. You know, I used to run lots of projects, but I knew that if I was trying to do something creative, I didn't know when I was going to come out with the result. I could tell you when my project would deliver, but other stuff I couldn't. And the work structures don't allow for that at all. And they don't allow for play and they don't allow for experimentation. You can't put those things on a Gantt chart, Colin. No. What are you th talking about? That just doesn't well, exactly, work, does exactly. it? Exactly. And we are all more doing more and more of this because we have more and more of what people are doing is knowledge work and it's based around creativity. Yeah, so we, you know, we have to create environments where people do feel you know, joyful and inspired because that's what companies need to be successful. And interestingly, every second day I see that slide that comes up on LinkedIn that says, here's the 10 essential skills for 2021 or now 2022 or 2025, creativity and innovation and critical thinking and problem solving. And But I wonder who writes these. I'm tipping it's not the people that are, are saying we don't want this to change. Maybe McKinsey, who, who's right? I don't know who writes them, but we're so far from that, it's not funny. Yeah. I mean, it's like taking an artist and sticking him in a windowless room mm. and then wondering why I don't paint anything. I mean, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> so, mate, let's finish up on I, you must say and say this very, very slowly so people can hear it. Your newsletter is absolute gold and it is a must read for people. So, thank you. If anyone is interested, mate, I love it. It is, it, it's almost the highlight of my week. There's another lady I, I deal with called Holly over in 
Oz, and she has an amazing one as well. But when I read yours, there's fits of laughter. There's some times of sadness because I'm realizing what people are putting up with. But the way that you tell tales, the tall tales you're telling is very, very much around what you've talked about with the pirates. Where can people sign up for your newsletter? So if they go to www.decrappifywork.com and then they can click on the Decrappify Work Not Newsletter, (laughs) (laughs) they can sign up there. I love it. Where else can they find you? Obviously, LinkedIn would be a place to, if they wanted to connect and know more about what you do, but what what else can they access to find out more about you? Um, Well, there's stuff on the website, pretty much around the stuff we've discussed today. Yep. Including a, there's actually a, a sort of synopsis of the Be More Pirate book, so you can get the sort of like the basic ideas of that. It hasn't got all the stories in it though, so I would read it as well. I'm mostly active on LinkedIn. I am on Twitter, but not so active on there. Yeah. So I, I guess just to, to close it off, if there are people in that mid level engine room space that are sick and tired of, having a headache from smashing their head against a brick wall and they're sort of starting to look around for some inspiration. I know where they can get it. They can get it from this guy, Colin Newland. Thanks for joining me and thanks for sharing some great tall tales today. Thanks, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Well, that was, uh, that was a pretty cool episode. I thought uh, the stories about pirates and how Colin brought in that great book that he mentioned by the author. I think his name was Sam. I forget his surname, but to be more pirate and, uh, and how... Colin has based a lot of what he's talking about now around what the pirates did or how the pirates came to be in existence. And it was really because, you know, they got together, they had a cause, and it was at times just a small cause, but they got together, they found some other crewmates, and they went out and they did the work they needed to do. And then they sat around after doing that work and told some tall tales tall tales and true about the change that they were able to make, about the conquests that they'd done, even though they were getting a bad rap. They seemed to work pretty well together. Sort of sounds like something that would work nicely in today's workplaces, although, as Colin did say, you need to be careful about being exposed here because it can be risky. So some of the things that he shared today that I really liked is your cause need not be too bold or over the top. It can be a small cause. I love the idea of You know, just don't go to that meeting and see what happens. Uh, Don't write that report that 200 people get but no one ever seems to read and see what happens. That's starting to declutter time for you to do some other better work. I loved his ideas around why we've made things so complicated. It's because work is supposed to be grim and hard and not much fun. So we just get caught on that sort of roundabout of misery because that's how work should be. Work is a fantasy land. The five-year plan, the offsite, the five-year plan we write when we write another five-year plan a year later and things continue to change because we're just looking to clutter things up and throw all the junk into the garage so we can't really move around and do more meaningful work. Collins share, I think, about talking about his son just quickly when he said his son came home and said, hey, Dad, Work's not much fun anymore. This is a generational thing. It's not something that's happened recently, is that people have been going through this for decades. And where Colin's coming from with that incredible newsletter that he puts out about decrapifying work is that there are some simple and practical things you can do 
regardless of at what level you're at in an organisation, to start to help to make this change. If you like this episode, why not rate it five stars? And if you loved it, share it with your friends. But until next time, keep it simple, keep it practical, and keep it human. Bye for now.